Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear David Crabb. Hey folks, this is David Crabb. And on this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Laura House. What's going on over there? You're feeding him with your boob? (laughs) That and more. But before that, folks, you're probably wondering, what the hell is going on here? Why is Kevin with David Crabb? We're currently in a very quiet hot tub, which is good. Just me and Kevin. We're eating fancy olives, and um, there's a lot of loose Persian cats. David is hosting this particular episode of Risk because this is a tribute to recent wonderful Risk stories that have been shared at the L.A. Live show that David hosts and produces. (laughs) Yes. And now you're here to co-host remotely something that we were at together that then I will host, even though I hosted it in person, which you will hear. It's all the future is now, people. Oh, my God. This is like uh, Inception or something. Oh, it's better than that. Stop it. Folks, you are in the best of hands, and I've got to get the hell away from him because... I mean, it is getting very warm and sweaty in here. So, uh, David, good luck hosting the show, and I have got to go. I hope you get home safely, and uh, I'll see you, Minerva. Be careful, the door has a funny... Oh, no, he's got it. Okay. Oh, oh, wow, he drives a Pinto. Okay. And he's gone. I better be careful. Those blow up on impact. He gets rear-ended. Oh, oh, my neighbor. Oh! Well, okay. I guess I should call 911 or something. Oh, Kevin. We'll be right back. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Okay, we're back. Um, Kevin is crisp, but he made it through. Okay. Um, the firemen are very attractive, uh, and I think that's doing something for his pulse rate. I think he's going to pull through. Oh, you know, he's flirting. He's going to be okay. He's going to be okay. He's flirting with firemen. Okay, I'm going to keep my eye on this. Um, Anyways, here's the show. Kiddos, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm David Crabb, and this is Missing Persons Behind Me Now. This is Nobody Walks in L.A., and as someone that really loves walking around L.A., I take great offense to this song, but it's also the first song that I was hoping would be here in this episode. So everyone's happy and everyone's sad, and that's me. We're calling this week's episode Live from L.A. number three. 
Live from LA number one was fantastic. Live from LA number two was shit. No, I'm kidding. Number two was fantastic. They were both great, but this is the third, I guess, in a series. The show happens the second or third Tuesday of every month here in Los Angeles at the Hotel Cafe. It is a beautiful room. It is a lovely venue, fabulous bartenders, the sweetest sound guy you'd ever want, and it has been such a joy to have the show at this venue for almost a year now. But let's get on with the episode. In a little bit, we're going to hear from John Flynn, who is an amazing storyteller that I've known for years, that I first met in New York. He has a fabulous memoir out called Bait. You can find John Flynn on Twitter at JFLY99. But before that, you're going to hear a story from yours truly. I told this the very same night. This is a story that I call COVID the Musical. I get an infusion every two months called Remicade, which is an, an immunosuppressant that you get if you have an autoimmune disease, right? And I have Crohn's. So I go, and um, I go to an infusion center. Because the world is falling apart at the seams, um, my medical provider is literally CVS. Like, th- those are the highfalutin medical scholars that I trust. The company CVS, because that's who covers my insurance, works with. Fine. Great. So... I go to an infusion center every two months where I get hooked up to these machines. It's kind of like chemo, and I get my um, treatment that weirdly saves my life by completely destroying my immune system. It's very bizarre and really arousing. Um, So I get hooked up, I get my thing, and they call me today to be like, our infusion center is closing. So unfortunately, you know, we're happy to, you know, provide you a home nurse. She said it like a hotel concierge would say, like, we're bringing you a pool pass, free martinis, and a shitload of towels and lube. Welcome. And what she didn't know, and I could tell she was surprised by, is when I said, no, you're not sending me a home nurse. I had a home nurse during the pandemic. I'll always remember, it was like the week when like COVID was like a dumb thing that was fucking up your friend's party in Miami. Like, remember? You remember that moment? Like February when like, oh God, dummies. So I was starting this treatment and the doctor said, look, because I researched it and I was like, do I want to have no immune system? This sounds dangerous and fucked up and weird. And the doctor was like, David, the only way that getting this treatment would fuck you up or be harmful was if like a global pandemic descended on the whole planet <laughs> and your life was in danger just by walking outside and breathing. Cut to. So um, for a few months, because uh, this was, this was uh, like the end of the year before the pandemic really hit, I would go to the doctor and there would be like, you know, nurses and doctors and people with carts and drugs and it was all very regimented. And then this happened. So I had this new health provider that was like, what we're going to do is send you a home nurse. And the person even told me like I was old and feeble, like we're going to send you a home nurse. And I was like, I'd rather just go to the hospital. And they're like, no, it's dangerous now. And what they were really saying is like, we're cutting corners. So we're sending a moderately educated person to your house. to give you something that you really need a crash cart for, but trust. So um, the first time that this person came to my house, let's call him Bob. He uh, had a salt and pepper ponytail and he wore a mask. And my husband and me, because I had no immune system, we were very scared. We opened all the windows and I like gave the dog a thousand treats. I'm like, it's going to be fine. Bob arrived. 
And what should have been a two-hour procedure, slowly as he unpacked, because the other thing is they mail you all the drugs. $20,000 worth of drugs. I've seen the receipt for my treatment, what it costs with no insurance. Every two months, $20,000 goes into this. And he starts unpacking it, and we're two hours of unpacking when he finally starts to administer it. And when he gets me ported, and I'm on my own couch with my dog, it feels totally not like sanitary, it's weird. That's when he stops and says, ugh, the fact that people believe in this COVID shit. I'm like, mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll go down this road. My infusion is two hours, I just wanna point that out. And I just got ported, and I'm depending on this man. And he proceeds to say, yeah, I mean, he invokes all the shit. The Bill Gates, the nanotechnology, the fact that he's a trained medical person and he understands how masks work and I don't. It's all a ruse. And I'm like, oh my God. And as this is happening, my husband comes home and he's like, why? He's looking at me like with a mask. Why is the guy still here? And I text him, vaccine denier, da, 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 all the stuff. Because he also told me that. I was like, oh, you know, have you gotten a vaccine? He's like, the vaccine is a lie. And then I'm like, Bob, what do you do as a home nurse? He's like, well, now I just go into the homes of very sick people with COVID day after day to to administer very experimental infusions. (laughs) So it's insane. And it's all made worse because my dog loves him. Like my dog has never loved anyone as much as Bob. And I'm like, how is this energy working? And at one point, I'm like, I'm there, and I'm looking at the bag drip. Now, when you go to a hospital and you get an infusion, there's a machine, and it helps pump, right? It drives liquid into your body. Here, we're just like in my living room. There's Netflix on pause, and we're waiting on gravity. Like, that is what is getting, and it's taking forever. And I'm like, how much am I going to be with this guy? And he's talking about all this stuff. I'm like, how am I going to get out of this? And I'm just like, so what do you really love? Like, I ask him that. What do you really love? And he looks at me. It's as if he knows what would hurt me. Even more. Because he says, musicals. At this point, my husband is texting me. I've heard all the windows slam open in the house because he's like, no one's hurting my baby. Like, no one puts a baby in the corner, right? He is double masked at this point. He keeps speaking around the corner, being like, you good? Uh, and I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. And then he's texting me, like, do we need to kick him out of the house? What do we need to do? And I'm like, I have to get the Remicade. I have to get the treatment. Like, he can't leave. So we're doing all this stuff. But the thing is, my husband loves musicals. He comes from a long line of people that love musicals. He knows that as a former goth who's very moody and went to art school, that's not my jam. And I'm like, okay, if I can get something out of this weird home nurse... Like, I can sound like, so what musicals do you love? He proceeds for the next 90 minutes of my treatment to pull up and play from his phone at maximum volume. I hear shit from My Fair Lady. I hear shit from Hair. And then we end up on this really, I mean, he's a deep cut musical kind of guy. At one point, I'm like, well, what's your favorite musical? And he was like, Carrie. And I'm like... No, 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 musical. And he's like, Carrie, an adaptation of the Stephen King story horror movie starring Sissy Spacek opened shortly before 9-11. It was met with great acclaim and is full of fabulous, fantastic, moving numbers, and it was killed all too soon because of the Twin Towers. And it's so weird to hear someone speak of the Twin Towers attack as a thing that ruined a musical. Like, it was just very (laughs) weird, you know what I mean? And I'm like, oh, well... 
I guess if it only ran a few weeks, none of it, and before I can say none of it exists in the world, he's like, I have all the files on my phone. And he proceeds to play me. I mean, there's a number that is like when like Carrie and her mother are fighting before she gets, you know, like corkscrewed, you know, like uh, crucified in the kitchen doorway. And it's like, my daughter has powers. Mother, why do you hate me? You are on your period now. Like it is just so like, uh, like every, because when I hear musical theater, it's a little bit like slam poetry. A part of me feels like embarrassed. Like I'm the one doing the thing, uh, even though it's not. Like it's like I am in their body and I wanted to make it stop. <laughs> But they're still singing at each other about blood and periods and Satan and the Bible. And he plays me all of these tracks. And at one point, I'm like, oh, my God, this, what am I going to do? And I look at him, and he takes the phone back, and he looks really overwhelmed emotionally. And then I say, well, I can tell this really affects you. And he's like, yeah, like, I taught this to all my kids. I worked at a halfway house in Brooklyn for, like, 10 years, and... He starts telling me these stories about how he helped all these kids who had drug addiction and they were like orphaned and they were disowned. And then he plays me this video that he's kept in his phone that's like 12, 15 years old of like these group of kids meeting like the original Rent cast or something. And they start singing with the Rent cast. And as he's holding it up for me, mind you, I mean, I'm not getting any face. He starts crying over his mask, like listening to these kids that he taught who got to like sing this song. And I'm like, oh, you're like a beautiful, complex person, and we just have a disagreement, and I'm a terrible asshole. And then I say, what else do you love? And he's like, I have 42 tarantulas and 10 snakes. The spiders live under my bed in a drawer. And then he proceeds to show me the drawer of horrible spiders that live in individual styrofoam cups. And I'm like, get out. No, I'm not, but I'm like, please leave. We tried to work through a few more sessions. I really wanted to understand him. We talked about Black Lives Matter. A few things happened. Uh, One time he was backing out of our driveway and he accidentally backed over all of our patio furniture and destroyed our couch and our coffee table and a lovely patio chair. And I was like, well, now he's really gone. And then later that day, he sent me $1,000. And I was like, wait, I don't understand who you are. And he's like, I destroyed your things and I want you to have beautiful patio furniture. And I'm like, oh my God, I hate, love you and I don't know what's happening. (laughs) I was like, you come over to my house and you essentially put poison in me and then you put poison in me. Uh, But then you're so sweet like sugar. Um, Eventually, we finally had a big confrontation after the January 6th insurrection and it was an insurmountable argument uh, we could not build a bridge, let alone a rainbow-colored one. He, he left in a hurry, and, and he didn't destroy any furniture, but I was very happy when he was gone because it really did hit me that, like, I think you can go so far down the path trying to understand someone, but it was really, like, I, I really thought about it. I was like, man, for months, I asked this guy all these questions because I want to get to the bottom of who he is and learn to love him, and I do it as he literally puts drugs in me that kill my immune system, that make me like a delicious meal for a global plague. So I called, and I eventually said, I cannot have Bob come over. I wish there was a fix for this, but I don't know how I'm going to get my treatment. And they were like, oh, don't you know, there's an infusion center 10 blocks from your house. You could have been going there for nine months. Nine months is how long I, how long I had Bob come over and talk to me about how the plague isn't real, um, Bill Gates is Satan, cops don't disproportionately hurt minorities, like all of it. 
And then I went there, and it was lovely. And they gave me Rice Krispie treats and little blue foil packages. And they had a crash card and an EpiPen if Papa had a little problem. And now they're closing. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know where I'm going to go. There's a place that they said, um, they said, in San Diego, we're thinking, I'm like, stop. <laughs> like, I'm not driving to San Diego to live. Um, but I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know. I, this story has no ending because I just found out today. But um, I do want you and I encourage you to find the lost recordings from Carrie. Um, if you can find them, I will tell you that for all the ways that I intrinsically hate musicals and people expressing themselves through song when they could just speak faster, there's some stunning, there's some stunning songs in the Carrie musical. And listen to the one about Satan and the period. You're going to love it. All right. That's all I got. I try so hard to play that way. Mama, you should have told me. I thought they needed to bear the curse, the curse of blood. The curse of blood. His name is Tommy Ross, Mama. He'll have me home by midnight. And he calls just another bird until he can spread his if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. We're back. 
I'm very tempted to just talk about Carrie the Musical for you all right now. Um, first of all, Carrie the Musical lasted for five performances on Broadway in 1987. 9-11 was 2001. No relation to Carrie the Musical. Also, that song is called An Eve Was Weak, and it is fucking incredible. You should definitely check it out. And also, it's on my phone. Um, both the off-Broadway boot, uh, the Broadway bootlegs and the off-Broadway cast recording, which is not as good. Find the bootlegs for Carrie with Betty Buckley and Lindsay Hately. Okay, we can talk about, th- I could talk about that for hours, but that's not why I'm here. So, <laughs> the story I was going to tell, this is actually 20 years ago. I just realized that as I was working on it this morning. I was an actor in New York, and I was one of those New York actors that was like, New York is fucking what it's about, man. New York is real. L.A. is like bullshit, and people are fake, and fuck L.A. I don't even want to be there. I want to live in New York, man. That's real. And then one day, my commercial agent uh, sent me on a go-see, which uh, is what models call auditions. And it's just because you go to the place, they see you. They take a picture, and then they're like, great, that's it. So models, as we all know, they're not that smart, so you have to call them a go-see. So they're like, oh, I get it. Um, and now, <laughs> I was never someone who, like, allowed myself to think I would ever be a model. Um, you, you see what I'm working with. You know, I never said no to a cheeseburger. But I always sort of imagined, like, if I wanted to be a model, I could do it. I could be one of the good ones, like one of the ones that get it, like, like smart, like not dumb, like I can take care of myself, like I could do it. So anyway, he sends me on this go-see for this print ad for this uh, major credit card. He was like, can you go tomorrow? And I was like, great. And that day, this is, again, 20 years ago. That day, all I had planned, what my plan was, I was going to leave my temp job and then go buy my very first iPod. I had scraped up $500. This was like a big deal. Again, 20 years ago, people were like, iPods, what is this? This is changing the future, just changing the world. And I was like, had my money. I was so excited. So I got to leave work early because I was like, I have a go-see. And then I have to go to the Apple store to get an iPod. And they're like... Okay. Um, so I go to this audition, and most commercial auditions, near a savvy LA audience, you guys probably know this. Like when you go to an audition, it's like variations of you. Like you go into a waiting room, there's people who are like a little taller than you, but you, and like fatter and shorter and more muscular and this or that. This, they didn't know what they wanted, my agent said. Like they're casting a very wide net. So I go there, and there's like two women who look like they just came from church, someone who looked like they came from the ER, a woman with a seen eye dog, a guy with a lizard. Like it was just insanity at this uh, commercial audition. And then for whatever reason, it wasn't, they weren't just taking a picture. They were having you come in and they were going to videotape, like, interviewing you. And so the one running the session was a little twink with a bowler hat, like he was going to a Debbie Gibson's concert later. Um, <laughs> and so I go in and, like, he, like, starts the, the, the recording. He's like, you know, so I slate my name. And he's like, so you do anything fun this weekend? I was like, well, actually, when I leave here... I'm going to go buy an iPod. And he was like, oh my God, what? <laughs> like, that's amazing. I was like, I know, it's going to change my life. They're like, it's going to be so different for me for now. And I'm like, yes. This is where we were at this time. <laughs> 9-11 actually had just happened a year ago. So we were a little, we had gotten used to carry of closing. Anyway, so, um, so like we talked for like five minutes. And then afterwards, he's like, you know, he stops the camera. And he's like, congratulations, man. That's, that's so awesome that you're getting an iPod. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> And he's like, I wish I was getting one. I'm like, one day, one day you will. I know it. I believe in you. Uh, So I go home. I get my iPod. I go home. I spend the weekend taking 500 CDs, putting them on my iPod. And then Monday morning, my agent calls me. And I guess the secret to booking a go-see is treat yourself to an iPod later that day because I booked this ad. And I was so excited. And he was like, they saw people in New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Miami, Las Vegas. They said when they saw your tape, everyone went, that's our guy. And I was like, oh, 
the, like, the thrill of that shallow validation, I cannot tell you like how, what a drug that was, where it was just like, you are going to be a model. Um, and so it was like a two-year buyout for all print media, which he's like, it includes billboards, magazines, size of buses or subways. And I was just like, my head was just getting so big. And he's like, so here's what's going to happen. Tomorrow, go to the airport. There's a ticket waiting for you. Take the receipt for your cab because they're going to pay you back. They're going to fly you there. As soon as you arrive, a car is going to take you to your costume fitting. After your fitting, they're taking you to a hotel. And he goes, and I negotiated, so you're getting a hotel suite that has a balcony. And I was like, you're amazing. Uh, and he said, the next morning, they're picking you up to the shoot. And after the shoot, they're taking you back to LAX. And so you will be back here the following day, the afternoon. It was like a 28-hour like gig. Like It was just like in and out. So that night I packed, which was very easy because I had just an iPod and one change of clothes. So that did not take long. And so I go to the airport and I get there and the ticket's waiting for me and everything's perfect. And I'm flying first class. And as I'm flying, I'm thinking to myself like, all right, Flynn, like, don't mess this up. Like, your life is about to change. Like, you're going to be a model now. Like, this is who you are. Um, you know, and it's like, and like, respect it. Like, be the model that you want to see in the world. Like, do it. Like, be that model. Be that person. Uh, so I was like, yeah, I'm going to do it. So like I land and there's someone waiting for me with my name on the card. And then he, and this limo takes me to this costume fitting, which was right on the ocean. <laughs> and I show up and they take me back down this hallway where there's like all these racks of clothes, where it's just like every single rack of clothes is like, each one had like a color theme, but it was like all different kinds of shirts. It was like green, dark green to light green, blue, dark blue to light. It was just like every single shirt in LA seemed like it was in this hallway. And I go back to this room and there's the wardrobe supervisor and her five assistants. And for the next four hours, they just come and put clothes on me. And I don't have to do anything. I just have to stand there with like roll up this and do that. And the whole time they're like, oh, you're so easy to work with. You're so like chill and like not difficult and you're not, like, not complaining or asking for anything. And I was like, yeah, I just love the work, you know. It's <laughs> just... <laughs> who I am as a model. Um, and so I, we do that. And then a car takes me to the hotel that I'm staying at that put me up at. And I go in to check in and they're like, oh my goodness, Mr. Flynn, we're so sorry. Uh, we don't have a suite that has a balcony available, but we do have a suite that has a hot tub inside if you would like that instead. And I was like, yeah, that sounds perfect. That sounds like an upgrade to me. And they're like, oh, thank you for not complaining uh, or not being difficult about this. And I was like, don't worry about it. That's, that's not who I am. That's, I'm not that model. <laughs> So that night, I, you know, like, I have a very sensible dinner, just drink a lot of water, and I spend, like, a couple hours just, like, with myself in the mirror, just sort of, like, trying to remember everything I've learned from America's Next Top Model. You know, like, smize, model head to toe, avoid dreckitude. Um, you know, and, like, remembering Tiger Banks, she's always like, you should always have something going on in your eyes so you don't seem, like, dead. And I'm like, yes, subtext, that's what I'm going to bring. That's who I am. I'm the model who brings the subtext. So the next morning I wake up, and what's great about it is that, like, my call time was 9 a.m., but I'm still on the East Coast time, so it's like your call time's noon. So, you know, like, I sleep really well. I, I took a dip in the hot tub. I did some light stretching. I journaled about gratitude. Just, like, did everything to get in the right mental space. I uh, show up at, like, 8.45. The, the PA is supposed to pick me up at 9. He's already there, and he's like, oh, my God, I can't believe you're here. He's like, most models are, like, an hour late. I'm like, that's... It's not me. I'm not that model. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm one of the good ones. I don't want to say it. Uh, so he takes me to this warehouse, this huge warehouse. There's a dozen electricians setting up lights and all this stuff. There are five different craft service tables. <laughs> there was a vegan one, a vegetarian one, one that was locally sourced, and two that just had everything else. So it was just like all food was there. There also was a piano tuner and a piano player that wasn't going to be in the shot. They just hired a piano tuner and a piano player just for ambiance. So I show up, you know, they had a, a very sensible dinner, a breakfast, excuse me, of like sushi and pressed juice. Then they take me to hair and makeup. There's 
five women, two hair, three makeup women just for me. And I'm just sitting there and I'm like, I'm going to be best friends with these women. And like, we're, I'm making them laugh and they're having the best time. They're like, you're the best model we've ever had. And I'm like, I know. And everyone's like, people are walking in. They're like, you guys are laughing a lot. And we're like, we're having the best time. Um, and every so often, like a lighting person will come and take me to do a test. And they'll be like, oh, you're so easy. This is great. We love working with you. I'm like, thanks, you guys. I'm like, I'm a model. Um, and then like two hours of this. And then a PA come, uh, not a PA, some guy in a suit comes and is like, oh, we're, they're just about ready for you. Um, but he pulls me aside and he's like, so look, so the premise of this campaign is that you have this credit card, like you are a user of this credit card and we notice that you don't have one. So, uh, and then he like, out of his pocket, he like takes out a credit card and he's like, so this is, we, we, we made this for you, basically. It's like a credit card for this company that he's like, it works, you can start using it right away. And I was like, being a model is amazing. Like they take care of everything. They just want you to be dumb. They're like, here's money, here's a credit card. Here's all everyone to dress you and do hair and makeup. I'm like, this is incredible. So finally, it is time to do the shoot. So they take me out to the studio and all this stuff. And, and there's all the people who've been running around. And I do notice this other woman who I hadn't seen before. And she's got like four inch heels. And like, to be honest, like her shoulder pads were a little too much. Um, but she's like in her Blackberry, just like looking, like not looking up, not addressing anyone. But like people are coming up to her. And without looking up, she'll just be like, no. And they'll like scurry away. So I'm like, oh, she's the alpha. Okay, like she's the one. All right, okay, got it. I can do this. So the photographer takes a few shots. And, uh, you know, everything's fun. And then he like shows this woman, you know, the shots off his camera. And without, she doesn't, she never looks at me. She just looks and she goes, ugh, who hired this guy? And suddenly the room gets so cold, so cold. Like, and the piano player stops playing. Like, it was just this whole, like, and I'm in this, having this weird moment of like, she can't have just said that. I'm three feet away from her. Like, that's insane. That's something an insane person would do. That's not this. This is not, this is magical. This is wonderful. And, like, all these people, like, start coming up from these different departments, like the lighting people and the, and the makeup and the wardrobe people. And she's like, what are we supposed to do with this? And they all are like, well, we tried, but what are we supposed to do? Let me look at him. And I'm like, do they not know I can hear them? Like, it's, I feel like I'm going crazy because they're all just like, he's grotesque. And it's like, I hear you and I understand you. Uh, so, like, they try different lighting. They, the wardrobe people come and they try, try on five or six different shirts until finally there's a shirt that this woman doesn't hate. But what she doesn't like about it is that it's kind of a scoop. And I'm kind of have a hairy chest, not really, but kind of. So they had to hire a professional chest hair thinner to come and thin my chest hair, which turned out to be, we had to wait 20 minutes for some, like, very old woman who was, like, bent over, who just sort of, like, slowly came in and, like, scissor overcombed over my chest. And they were like, all right, time for some shots. So then, like, the photographer and I got back to it, and the whole time I was like, you're the model of models. Like, just, just be in it. It's okay. Modeling sometimes has pain. You can get through this. It's going to be great. You can do this. And so, like, he's, we're taking some pictures, and he's, like, giving me direction. And at some point, he's like, you know, act like you came home and your girlfriend just made your favorite dinner. And I'm like, mm, read the room, but okay. Um... <laughs> So, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm working my angles and smizing and not being dreckitude as best as I can, even though I'm disgusting, apparently. And after like 10 or 15 minutes, the photographer's like, I think we got the shot. Passes off the camera to some assistant and he and the woman leave. No goodbye, nothing. And suddenly the set is empty. No one is there. Like everyone's just like out of here. So I like go back to my dressing room. No one is there. All those women who I was having the best time with earlier, not, nowhere to be found. All of my clothes that were my clothes are just like in a little pile. As I'm like getting dressed, one of the PAs comes over and he goes, oh, here's money for the cab. So you, you don't need to like save the receipt. And I don't think he meant this, but he did say that way we never have to speak to you again. <laughs> 
So I get in the cab and I fly home and the whole time I'm like, fuck LA, LA can go fuck itself. I was right, this place is bullshit. I hate it here, I'm never coming back. And, but hope sprung eternal and I still was like waiting to like maybe walking through Times Square, see a lot of billboards with my face on it with this credit card. Maybe they'd be like, wicked, Lion King, me. (laughs) Doesn't happen, but a year and a half later, I get a call from a friend of mine who was on tour with Legally Blonde, and he said, I'm at a truck stop in Kansas City, Missouri, and in the men's room, there's a picture of you (laughs) with an ad for a credit card, and someone has graffitied it, I heart dicks, with a dick going right to your mouth. (laughs) And I thought, well, this is where my modeling dreams went to die, in a truck stop in Kansas City, Missouri, but at least they could read my subtext. Thank you all very much. John Flynn, everybody. Oh, my God. Uh, John, was the credit card they gave you usable? It was. That, that is so... My, my husband uh, was in an ad for a fast food restaurant, and he had to have a, a fake wife, read the subtext, and uh, uh, two kids, and they had to sit at a booth, and, uh, you know, the only line he really had was he ate a bite of this steak, and he had to say, that's hot! And everyone in his family gave him the hardest time for years after this came out. That's hot! Um... And when he did that, they, I mean, it was the first story I ever heard like this about like the people you don't see that like work for the company, like waiting in the wings. And he was like, you know, oh, I love my wife and I love my, like very quickly in 20 minutes, I was like, oh, these kids could be mine. They're great. I love my wife. And then they were on set for 15 minutes. And then all of a sudden they went backstage and they were like, to the wife, can we talk to you? And she went away. Five minutes later, she came back, and I—I I mean, I've only heard the story secondhand. But she was weeping, and she just started getting her stuff. And he was like, "What's going on, honey? Whatever." And she's like, "I'm not your wife anymore," um, because the suits had like just seen her in the live feed and been like, "Nope." And uh, my husband had a wife 10 minutes later um, who was the second place person who was there, and that is like the strangest, weirdest thing. Like that they can do that. Also, John Flynn, the story uh, that I can tell you now, his book Baked is about being a, uh, a weed baker in New York, uh, dealing delicious, slightly green cookies. And when he first, uh, one of the, I think one of the first times you did sort of a live performance of the long form of the show in New York at UCB East, I got there late. He had already done a little bit of an intro and I got there late and they were passing around chocolate chip cookies. And I was like, all I knew was baked. I didn't know John's past. I was like, oh, I guess he was a baker. I can't wait to find out more about like his kitchen craft. I ate a whole one of these cookies that was being passed around. And then I watched a layered show. I mean, I felt things. I was nauseated at one point. I got real hot. I was laughing too hard at one point. I was like, what's happening? I ate like pounds of weed. Like, like I went into a business that fed me pounds of weed, and they were homemade cookies from John Flynn. So, if you ever need a fix, are you out of the business? I'm out of the business. God damn it! Anyway, oh, I haven't got. Well, when I got my book, you can get a signed copy if you go. I might have gotten a little bag of cookies that I've been literally. I eat like I'm Michelangelo chipping away at a piece of granite because I've learned my lesson. Um, John Flynn, everyone, so fun. 
I'm so excited to have our next storyteller. Um, I asked her, I was like, how do you want me to describe you? And she's like, well, we're best friends from the 90s. And it's funny because we're best friends from the 90s. Um, and it's funny because we both, uh, I went to school in San Marcos, Texas. Anyone? Okay. And when, I, and when I say school, I mean college. So that's how minute uh, San Marcos is. But it was near Austin? Great. There we go. Um, uh, Laura is a comedian and a writer. She wrote uh, for t- the TV show Mom, which many of you have probably seen. In my book, she's like one of the first like famous people that I was like, I know a famous person. Because there was this MTV comedy called Austin Stories. I don't know if any of y'all saw it, but it was fucking hysterical, and she's hysterical, and I'm so happy she's here. Welcome to the stage, Laura House. My mom couldn't have kids. So the word adoption was used in our house a lot. It was never weird. We were always told, and I got it. I was like, I knew that babies came out of ladies, but my mom couldn't have babies. So I was a smart kid. I was like, there must be ladies out there having babies for everybody, like Handmaid's Tale. I figured out when I was six. <laughs> like, we got stuff from the store, right? We weren't farmers, but we ate lettuce and salad. So I was like, oh, somebody's, there's lady baby farmers out there. Like, okay, I get it. And when I was 10, I got some new information. I was down the street, and uh, a woman there was uh, breastfeeding. We're at a neighbor's house, and a woman's breastfeeding. And I, I had seen her pregnant, so I, I was like, oh, she must be one of those lady baby farmers. But then when I started with a baby, I was like, what's that about? But, so I, I had questions like, you get to keep him? What are you doing? When does he go to his real family? What's going on over there? You're feeding him with your boob? Like, it was, that was never on the menu at my house. Like, it just was bizarre to me. And she very quickly, for some reason, sent me off to my mom. And that's the day I learned that not everyone is adopted. I was like, oh, not everybody's from a baby store, basically just me and my brother, and no. And that's when I became sort of obsessed with finding my birth mother. And it wasn't because I had a bad family. I had a great family. My mom and dad, my big brother, great people. The house family, mwah, chef's kiss. Great, (laughs) wonderful people. I love them. I'm just not like them. Like, my dad was a civil engineer, and my mom taught seventh grade. Like, they are nice, calm, logical people. I rant into microphones as much as possible. I'm literally doing it right now. When someone was sick, my mom was really quick to, like, make a crock pot full of soup and take it to their house, and I'm a smartass. I once did a character named Cunty Cunterson. So we're (laughs) not the same. I made my mom take me to clown class and buy me a ventriloquist dummy when I was little because I'm showbiz folk and they don't get it. And so I became upset. I really wanted to know who was this woman I came out of because I just had to, is she like me? Am I like someone out there? And I also kind of, couldn't wrap my mind around the concept. Like, is she just walking around? 
Like nothing happened. <laughs> like, do I run into her? Do we pass each other at the store? Is she a teacher at my school? Is it Sally Field? I mean, I love Smokey and the Bandit. Like, I didn't know. And so I was very curious. And in college, I actually was pretty sure I found her. So picture this. This is uh, when I'm best friends with David Crabb. <laughs> it's the early 90s. And... Uh, Love Shack is in the air and on the airwaves and Madonna's expressed yourself. You can feel it. <laughs> Roseanne is the number one show on TV. And uh, I'm a sophomore at the University of Texas in Austin, the Longhorns, I think. And we're, I'm walking, I'm 19, I'm a sophomore. I'm walking to my dorm in West Campus and I'm reading a story in the newspaper, a school paper. It caught my eye because it was about Roseanne. And... The story said she had given up a baby for adoption 19 years before, and that the National Enquirer had found the girl, but they were not releasing the name until the girl actually got contacted. But what they did know was this. Not kidding. She's a sophomore at the University of Texas at Austin. She is 19 years old. I am all of these things. And she lives in a dorm in West Campus. I'm walking to my dorm in West Campus. Oh my God. Roseanne is my mom. Roseanne Barr is my mother. Everything made sense for one goddamn second. I was like, I, get, I want to be a comedian. I'm a smart, I'm like her. I love John Goodman. Like this totally. <laughs> then I read the next sentence, which said the baby was from a Jewish adoption agency in Utah and I'm from Dallas. And I was like, oh, so close. <laughs> the real one actually was two blocks away. That's how close I was anyway. I was super interested in finding my birth mother, but it was closed adoptions. There was only so much I could do. I did contact the adoption agency, and I got a um, redacted file. It had a little bit of information about the family, like she had a brother and a sister, so I had an uncle and an aunt out there somewhere, and everybody, it had heights and weights. Everybody was kind of short and stocky, that tracked, and <laughs> I was like, mm, no, this is real, and... Um, <laughs> The people at the adoption agency said you can write a letter for the adoption registry. And what that means is you write a letter to her, we put it in this adoption registry, and if she writes a letter to you too, you'll be contacted. Maybe if you want to meet. And so I pour my guts into this letter, and I, I don't hear anything. And I just got on with my life. I don't know how else to say it. Like, for one, I had to get into show business. I got on <laughs> Austin Star. How you can't waste any more time. And I. <laughs> I taught seventh grade like my mom wanted me to, and then I did stand up, and I was discovered by MTV, and I was put on Austin Stories, and I came out to L.A., and I, I was Comedy Central, HBO. Anyway, it's not about my resume, but I did pretty well. And I... Oh, thank you. Now what? People love self-esteem, don't they? Anyway, so I... But I did wonder. I did sometimes... I didn't get on TV for her to see me, but I... I did wonder, like, did she ever catch me on TV? Like, would she just know? 
if she saw me? Like, like would she ever be like, <laughs> she's so funny. Did she come out of me? <laughs> I just always wondered if we would have this connection. And to be honest, like, I, I'm going to fast forward a lot here because I drank for 20 years. I got sober <laughs> for a lot. Of, there was a lot of life in between. And it was a long time until I finally became ready to do the big search. There was a big search you could do at the adoption agency, and um, there's forms and fees and required counseling, and it was in my 40s that I was like, you know what, I'm, for one, sober, and then also happy enough, successful. I felt settled, and I was like, I'm ready to find her. And when I did the counseling with the adoption agency, they were trying to prepare me for any situation. They were like, what if you don't like her? What if she doesn't like you? I'm like, everybody likes me. And then they were, they were, they were like, it says here you teach meditation. What if she thinks that's weird? And I was like, sounds like you think it's weird. Anyway, I brought up to them that I was concerned. Maybe she didn't want to know me because I never got a letter from the adoption registry. And they explained Actually, that's no big deal. That might not mean anything. Some women are told about the adoption registry as they're being wheeled into the delivery room. So it's a very stressful time on a very stressful day. And she, she said, some people genuinely kind of don't even get that information. So don't worry about it. Let's do a search. Yes. So pay the fee. And I'm like, let's go. And just know that when I was little, I used to write my birth mother letters that she could never get. Like in my journal, I would write to her. Like I just wanted her to know I was doing all right. Like, hey, I got all A's this six weeks or, you know, I, I want, you know, I won the spelling bee for the whole grade and I'm a foreign exchange student in Norway. Like I wanted her to know I did something with the life she bothered to give me. And I also wanted to connect with her because, honestly, I had never met anyone that I shared DNA with. Like, I simple thing. My best friend was a twin, so she had constant DNA she's looking at. I never looked into eyes that were my eyes. I never touched anyone who's like, we share the same blood. And I just wanted to know, are we alike? Do we have the same nose, the same lap? Who is this person who made me? So in a couple months, I follow up with the adoption agency about the search, and they said, we found her. But she hasn't responded to us. That means they reached out, they knocked on the door, they made calls, something, no response. And they said, this happens every now and then, we have to call off the search. Essentially, no response is a no. And they told me I would never be able to meet my birth mother. And I was devastated because I'd really felt like I'm finally ready. Like I can take it now. And then there was nothing there to take and there was nothing I could do about it. So I had to go on. I just had to accept, okay, I'll never have this answer. A couple years later, I'm talking to a friend and she's very excited because she just did this fun thing and found out she's like 63% Swedish. 23 and me. And I was like, what's this now? <laughs> DNA testing. And you find out if you're Neanderthal, 
And you can connect with DNA relatives all over. It's reasonably priced. She said, you should try it. I was like, oh, I will. (laughs) Because I'm going to catfish my birth mother. (laughs) Ball's in my court now. (laughs) I'm going to do for me what that adoption agency could not. So I spit in the thing and I send it off and I'm like, here we go. Bring them on. And uh, nothing, nothing, nothing. If you've been on 23andMe, you would know. Not nothing. You get a ping every now and then and it's always a sixth cousin. It's always a sixth. It is literally always a sixth cousin. Just completely. And they're like, what's your name? And they're, you're just, no, no. Years, years of this. I mean, tumbleweeds are blowing through my 23andMe account. There's just nothing. And I get a ping one day, it's July 2018, I'm in my LA apartment with my very lovely fiance, Brian. And, oh, and he has a lot of fans everywhere. And I get a ping, and I barely even check it anymore, whatever, yawn. But I did check, and this message said, I just got my results back, and it looks like I'm your half-brother. And that's how I met my little brother, Jeremy. I have, I have two little half-brothers, which makes one whole brother, which is fun. And <laughs> he's adorable. We, he told me about his life. And, you know, I didn't even know anything about, like, I, did he know he had a sister? And did, do we share a mom or a dad? Or what's the deal? And we, we share a mom. And she raised him. So this woman I've been obsessed with, I'm writing about her in my journal, and I'm, who are you? My whole life is just his mom, like a complete casual non-mystery to him. And I'm like, ooh, what's her nose like? And, but I take it really slow. Like, to be honest, the way we got to know each other, most closely parallels online dating, <laughs> even though that wasn't the goal. It's, but it that had that same, like, I want to love you, but this is the internet. You might be crazy. <laughs> so I took it really slow, and uh, he told me, he said he had, he had known about me. Not a lot, but that he and his other brother were told in high school that they had a sister out there somewhere. And he said... I've been looking for you. I did not know till right that second when I burst into tears that I'd always wanted to hear that. So we talk and text and we cry and he tells me about his life and I tell him about mine and he's telling me about family and he, he sends a picture and we do look alike. We do have the same nose, me and my mom. We oddly have almost the exact same name And he tells me that we share a 100-year-old grandmother, Bama Ruth. So I basically found out I'm never going to die, which I can't afford. So it's kind of mixed. (laughs) The mixed. Going to have to deal with that, but okay. And I don't ask him a lot about my birth mother. To be honest, I felt like like I'm one degree away. And I still don't know if she wants to know me. And I don't want to scare him off. And I'm loving getting to know him. So I just for this time, I was like, it's enough. I love this guy. Like, we're teasing each other. I was like, oh, my God, I'm your big sister. I owe you so many noogies and Christmas presents. And he was like, oh, I owe you so many trying to hang out with you all the time when you're at the mall with your friends. But it's really just because I look up to you and I want to be like you. And I was like, he's the best. 
So after about a week, he says, I have something for you. And he texts me a phone number. And he says, she's looking forward to talking to you. And I'm, I'm working at a library on Melrose in LA. And I'm staring at my birth mother's phone number. And it is a Dallas area code, just like my father has, just like my brother has. I could have run into her at the grocery store. She was very close. And I, I'm crying like a psychopath. <laughs> like I can't even say, I'm just Niagara Falls. And I'm, and I'm just, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a finger touching a phone away from my birth mother. But I had to go home. I had to decompress. I, like, I, I had to like, get up the nerve to call. Like, I'm going to hear her voice. Is it going to make my brain explode? I don't even know what's going to happen. And actually, before I made the call, I was like, okay, I'm going to call. And, and this guttural sound came out of me. This, it, was, it was like some pain from under the rug in the basement of my soul. And I was just like, Argh! And it called. And it went to voicemail. Can you believe it? It went to voicemail. What, do you, what voicemail do you leave? I was, do I hang up? I can't hang up. I waited 40 years for this. And I was like, oh, the, the beep is coming. And what do you, hey, this is Laura. Uh, I'm your, your, uh, my, I got your number from Jeremy. And... I don't know if you're going to talk or anything, but I, I did want to say thank you. Anyway, three, two, three, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and she called back, and she was happy to hear from me. She was like, the baby's back. Jeremy found the baby. She told me that she got to hold me one time and that she kissed my head, and she prayed for me that I would find a great family and have a good life. And in that moment, I realized, I did. I did find a great family. I did have a good life. And she was really happy that we had been able to connect, which made me wonder, and I asked, well then, did the adoption agency contact you a couple of years ago? I mean, did you? <laughs> I mean, I don't want to pry or anything, but I was like, did, I mean, did you, like, what was that? What, why? And uh, I did ask, like, why didn't she respond when they, and to be honest, she didn't really want to talk about it. She sort of deflected and was like, you know what? We're together now. And I asked again, and, and she said, you know what? Maybe the time is perfect now. And I asked again, and she said, oh, doesn't matter. This, this is all worked out. And I stopped asking, because it's none of my business. I don't know why. I don't need to know why. I do have a theory. Because Jeremy vetted me. Of course, I catfished her. <laughs> they vetted me. Why wouldn't you? These are modern times. I mean, you don't, she wouldn't know if someone knocks on her door, hey, some baby wants to meet you. She doesn't know what I feel or what I want from her. And just like, I didn't know how she was gonna feel or, or what she was like or what this was, and it's scary. 
my fiance Brian and I, we flew to Texas and I met my whole biological family, the aunt, the uncle, cousins, and Bama Ruth. It was incredible. And when I met my, my birth mother, it was in a very small barbecue place in a very small town in Texas. And she walked up to me and she gave me a hug. And we do look alike. I mean, it is, <laughs> we are shaped and we have mannerisms and it is the same. And she wrapped her arms around me and she held me like heart to heart. And she rocked me and she took a step back and she said, you've grown. <laughs> so she, she's like me. <laughs> or I'm like her. We're like, we are like, we are alike. That is that for sure. I don't know how much I have in common with Sally Field, but definitely my birth mother, we, we are alike. And I did not know that smart ass was genetic, but apparently it is. And this, this whole thing changed the entire story of my life. I really, my whole life I thought, oh, I was born this huge inconvenience to someone and I was given up to this you know, family that never really understood me. And what I learned was, no, I was born in love and I was raised in more love and it's so much love, it's sickening. And I may not even be able to do comedy after this. It's too much, <laughs> it's too much, but... <laughs> Also very sweet. I mean, that's great. I'll just find another profession. But I, I, and I realized too, I thought I had to be one or the other. Oh, I'm not like this family. Maybe I'm like this other family. And I got to realize I'm both. I'm both. I don't have to be a perfect fit. And it was also, it was the house family that bought me the madriloquist dummy and sent me to clown class, even though they thought it was stupid, which it was. I mean, that's a good family. <laughs> And so it doesn't really matter if I am a perfect fit somewhere or not or whatever. I belong to both, and I am both. And all that really matters is the baby's back. Hello, baby. There must be ladies out there having babies for everybody. There's lady baby farmers out there.
is David Crabb, and we are almost at the end of this episode. This is Billy Bragg and Wilco playing Behind Me Now, and that was preceded by an interstitial by nervous Neil Smith called Ladies Making Babies. Before that, we heard The Baby's Back from Laura House, edited by Taj Easton, who also edited all the other stories on this episode. Laura is as great and funny and fantastic as she seems like she is from that story, and you can find out more about her at www.laurahouse.com. She also hosts a podcast called Tiny Victories, where she celebrates fleeting joys and minor accomplishments. Before that, you heard Not That Model by the illustrious John Flynn. He's my second favorite gay ginger, and he could be my first depending on how Kevin comes out of this horrific Pinto accident. Before that, you heard COVID the Musical by Yours Truly, and that was followed by The Destruction by Lawrence D. Cohen from Carrie the Dreaded Musical. We'll be right back. We're back. The next live risk in L.A. happens on Tuesday, December 13th at Hotel Cafe. That is my birthday, so it will be a very special show. Let me declare here now that no gifts are expected. However, you know, I'm just saying if I did want something, you know what would be great is the risk book. The Risk book is full of some amazing stories from years and years of podcasts. You can also go online to hit the Risk merch store. You can't tell me you're still drinking coffee from a mug that doesn't have Kevin's screaming face on it. You can get it there, so go. Or you can order storytelling training for a friend for Christmas. A lot of amazing people teach at the Story Studio, almost all of whom you've heard tell amazing stories on the Risk podcast, including Kevin. Whoa, 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 whoa. Oh, whoa. Hey, everyone. He's being rolled back in. He is on a gurney, and there's a strong burning smell coming off him. Kevin! Oh, hello! Oh, buddy, how are you? You know, David, I forgot I have never once in my life driven a car before, which made speeding off in that Pinto just a terrible idea. It was a terrible idea, but you know, Kevin, that's the thing I love about you. When you see a chance, you take it. I do. And you know what? Today's the day. Take a risk. Take a risk. God made Eve from the rib of Adam 
and Eve was weak and loosed the raven on the world. Mama, it wasn't and the my raven fault. was called sin. And God visited Eve with a curse, and the curse was the curse of blood. Say it, woman. And God made Eve from Adam's rib, and Eve was weak. Mama, and how Eve could I weak. know? And Eve was weak. Why didn't you tell me? And God made Eve to bear the curse, the curse of blood. It's not a curse. Miss Gardner curse said it's blood. something all girls go through. The curse of blood. You should have told me! You're a woman now. Pray to heaven for your wicked soul. The raven came to plague the world. Its name was sin. It's not a sin. Its name was sin. Oh, mama, it's, it's not name a was sin. sin. Begin. And thus was how the sin began. The sin was man. I don't understand. Well, understand. No. The sin was man. What have I God done? has seen your sinning just beginning. Pray for your salvation from damnation.